Hi, it's Connor Svensson here, founder and CEO of Web3 Labs. This is a conversation I had with Paul Brody, global blockchain leader at EY. Paul's had a very distinguished career, having also worked at IBM and McKinsey, among other firms, and has a wealth of experience across IoT, supply chain, operations, and business strategy. In our conversation, we discussed how Paul, as well as EY, first got involved in blockchain via Bitcoin, and subsequently how he and his team went on to create the Nightfall Zero Knowledge Proof Library. We also discussed why he believes organizations should only focus on public blockchains, not private, why the future is tokenization of everything, even within enterprise, and some of the common myths he sees with respect to where blockchain is impactful. In my research for this podcast, I read a comment from a former colleague of Paul who said, anybody who spends time with Paul will come away smarter, which I thought summed up our conversation nicely. Paul, it's an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. You've had a very rich career spanning McKinsey, IBM and EY, among other companies. According to your public profile, you became a global blockchain leader at EY in 2016. But when did blockchain first emerge on your radar? Um, so uh, blockchain really sort of emerged on my radar personally when I was at IBM. And, you know, I, I developed this incredible interest in decentralized systems, because the Internet of Things, we, we, we are getting to this moment where all these smart devices that we carry around with us all the time are, in fact, smart enough to manage themselves. And yet companies are spending all this money building data center infrastructure. They're building management infrastructure. And it, it's expensive, right? It actually transforms the economics. And so when I was at IBM, I was the, the head of the Global Electronics Industry Business Unit. And I had clients who were saying, hey, the Internet of Things is going to bankrupt us, right? We're going to we're going to be overwhelmed by the long term costs of managing all these devices and the complexity of managing them, right? We we've got um, potentially millions of devices out there uh, in in different kind of um, levels of maturity, right? What happens if we don't find servers or we want to step back, right? We hear stories all the time about companies sort of accidentally or on purpose bricking devices that people have purchased over the years because they can't maintain the service or the service infrastructure anymore. So uh, that's what I got interested in. And we we started with this analysis that, okay, we need to understand what kinds of decentralized systems out there could potentially work for companies. And we looked at a whole bunch of them, but we got excited about blockchain because it includes payments. It's built around money. And we, we used to say, we don't really know what the internet of things will generate money for, but we believe that one day it will generate revenue. And when that happens, if we deploy on a blockchain-based ecosystem, we'll have this built-in method for accounts and payments and contracts, and we'll be laying the foundation. And, and once you get into blockchain, of course, you know it, it's, a, it's a slippery slope. And before you know it, you're you're quitting your job and looking to work full time in the space. Absolutely. And so so with that kind of spin on it, was it more about the the reduction in the services infrastructure that would need to be supported to use these devices? If you have more, you know, blockchain is in effect a common service fabric for these uh, all of these devices globally longer term. When I got started, absolutely. That was like we were that's where we were thinking. That's how we're thinking, OK, we're going to sell this vision. Right. And we had actually the, the first client of this uh, that we built out as a prototype was Samsung. So we had this vision. We're like, we're going to sell this. We, we, we knew what we were doing. And that part was that part was really exciting. But of course, since then, it's gotten so much bigger and so much further. But I I do fondly remember working with this guy, Vitalik Buterin, on the alpha version of Ethereum, because that's what we used in our, our prototype solution at IBM. And so at that point, did you select Ethereum because it was you know, of the computation potential with it? Or was it kind of more, you know, more to it than that at that point? No, no, we were very, very much aligned with this idea of a world computer, right? We were already talking about that. That was Vitalik's vision. We looked at Bitcoin and we were very impressed with Bitcoin. But um, when we, we sort of thought about Ethereum, we, you know, we, we want a computing infrastructure, not just a... Uh, we want a computing infrastructure, not just a uh, a blockchain infrastructure. Yeah, got you. 
And so with with, with that, um, you know, fast forward, of course, to the, the current day, there's you know, things things have changed an awful lot since those those early days. But, um, you know, what, what was it really that, um, you know, helped the momentum continue to gather within EY anyway, and with your role uh, to, to, really, to really see the potential there? And you know, because no doubt there were clients coming to you and there must have been certain use cases that were really emerging beyond just the IoT as well. So how, how did it kind of evolve? So at EY, things got really started around financial services because EY is an audit firm. That's the firm's history, right? And, and EY got into blockchain for a very simple reason, which was we had clients who had material amounts of Bitcoin on their balance sheet. And so we had a choice. Either we learn how to audit this stuff or we resign the audit. So we had to learn. So we, we had to learn. We had clients who were coming on organically. What was exciting and rewarding was the decision by EY to say, we believe in this technology, we believe in the vision going forward, and therefore we want to invest in building something more than just the most basic audit capability. And was that something that actually required a lot of uh, you know, work internally to actually drum up the support, or did it all happen quite organically just because of the external demand that was kind of coming in? No, it did not happen organically. In fact, there was definitely a faction. There's definitely a faction of people who really sort of said, you know, uh, um, should we be in this business at all? Should we? There were there were people absolutely who advocated for resigning from those accounts that had Bitcoin, right? I mean, you know, particularly early on, there was this view that that looked upon Bitcoin as sort of in in the same in the same category as like gambling or other sort of vices or, or potential dangers, and so. Um, that was a, a an early stage option and was taken seriously. And, and early on, when I said I want us to be the world's leading blockchain software company, that got a lot of opposition. And you know, the 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 bulk of the firm, the majority of folks, have always been on board with this vision to create a true kind of global business to invest in the technology. One of the things that that was exciting early on, as I said, if we want to be good at this. We want to properly sign off on audits, for example. It's very important that we understand. Um, it's very important that we understand the math of cryptography if we're going to do this. Not just that we can read the explorer, and so we got to hire our own mathematicians and and really uh, and cryptographers. And so, but it, there was an absolute struggle, right? It was a very conscious decision by the senior leadership to override some of the fears of more conservative people and to press on in this technology, in this market, and in investing in something that more than the absolute minimum required to do the audits. Right. And so then with that, if you're hiring cryptographers and so on, they're, they're coming to the table with ideas and certainly, you know, one of one of the products that was first released, I think it was you know, a few years ago. Now was was Nightfall, which was a, a zero knowledge proof, I guess, library. Um, was that one of these things that kind of you know spun out? Just well, was created really off the back of having all of these minds together, or were there other angles to it? There, you know, once you start bringing on these types of people, it uh, certainly gives you these powers to work on things like this. So Nightfall would absolutely not have been possible without these incredible rock stars. I mean, our head of research, uh, Duncan Westland, PhD, physics from Oxford, absolutely brilliant. Chaitanya Khanda, actually, but I shouldn't tell you any of these names because we keep getting our, our most brilliant people poached, but we had these, these incredibly brilliant, we have these incredibly brilliant people and they, um, they, they made all of this possible. I will say, uh, and I'm, I'm maybe unjustifiably proud of this, but, Nightfall was my idea. I, I didn't know how to do it, but I knew what I wanted to do. What I knew about blockchain was this. The only purpose for having a blockchain is to have a truly decentralized system with no central powerful intermediary, right? And, and the problem is having spent 20 years in the enterprise software business, I also know that nobody is going to sign up for any kind of system where your competition can see your contracts, your business, your payments in detail. So we have to have privacy without private blockchains. I always knew private blockchains were never gonna fly. And so the very first thing that we started working on, even though it took us three years to build the first version, the first thing we started working on was privacy on public blockchains. That, was, that has been job one for six years. 
Okay, and and so then, if if we just go go back to this this idea that you had audit related to Bitcoin and cryptos, and you'd you know, you'd you'd, look, you'd worked on Ethereum and looked at it for the potential of IoT, but then at, at what point uh, was it that then you started seeing like, Ethereum was like this this platform to focus on and then you know with the work with nightfall for instance that was of course aligned with ethereum as well so how how did those kind of pieces come together we made a decision i think pretty quickly easily within the first year so i want to say 2016 2015 2016 that we were only going to build applications on ethereum so i think pretty early on back in 2015 2016 our business model started to come together and and it came together like this we said number one we will audit, we will do audit work for any company, any one of our clients on any blockchain they're on. Doesn't matter what blockchain, EOS, Bitcoin, Bitcoin Lite, Litecoin Cash, doesn't matter. We will do your audit and we will build technology to support all the biggest blockchains. So right, I think right now we support something like six major blockchains with very in-depth audit technology. We can we have audit procedures for many, many other blockchains, but in terms of a deeply technologically supported audit, we've got about six, right? And then we said, okay, the other thing is we're gonna build applications. We are only, we've got two issues. Number one, we only really believe in public blockchains, right? So if we wanna build any kind of business application, we're gonna have to build it on a public blockchain if it's gonna be useful. And number two, um, we're gonna only build on Ethereum. And that, that's sort of driven by um, a, a couple of, of fairly straightforward calculations. Number one, um, if you want to do stuff really well, you can only do a limited number of things. We can't build and, and we can't write great code on Hyperledger, Ethereum, EOS, you know, you name it, right? You got, you got to, you got to pick one. And if you're going to pick one, it's got to be the biggest. So already Ethereum was, was by far the leading blockchain for, for sort of programmability. And then finally, the, the, the thing that really sort of nailed it for Ethereum was we knew being practical that we were gonna have to do some private blockchains. But the beauty of Ethereum is it's got a public mainnet, but I can also build a private blockchain. Uh, if you want, I can build it on Ethereum. And so consequently, we knew that we would be able to serve clients who insisted on private blockchains on Ethereum. And we thought, and I will say we were wrong about this, but we thought we would be able to migrate them easily eventually to the public mainnet. You, you say that in terms of that migration process, though, I mean, what, what have been the barriers there? Uh, so so we've learned a lot since then. So this, this thing about this was 2016, right? So this is five years ago, right? We were we first of all, we, we didn't we knew that we wanted to have privacy on public blockchains for business applications. We did not know how we were going to do it. We kind of thought zero knowledge proofs would probably be the way, but we weren't sure. Right. Uh, so that was one sort of big thing. Right. Secondly. Um, I think we didn't understand how private blockchains would mature. And they matured, if I'm being honest, in a very unsuccessful way. Um, so what happened with private blockchains, and we, we saw this a, a lot over and over again, um, people would sort of build their own private blockchain. And because it's not anchored to the mainnet, the first iteration would look a lot like sort of a, a, an Ethereum ecosystem. But then it would start building extra features, right? Features that don't exist on the mainnet, features that can never exist on the mainnet. And then they would start doing things that would be impossible. Like we had one client who told us with great pride that in version like 3.0 of their product, they had successfully managed to bring in all the sensitive personal information on chain. Okay, now we're never gonna be able to put this on the mainnet. So um, what happened, what we discovered was a little bit like boats drifting apart in the ocean, right? You have this like, super tanker called ethereum which has got all this stuff on it and then you've got this like little side boat and what happens is over time they kept drifting further and further apart and what i, I would say i discovered is that in the end all, all the the private blockchains that we hope to migrate back onto public by the time they were even ready to consider it they were so far from what would be an acceptable public standard that they would not that, that, that we couldn't do it and on private blockchains, people make decisions about security and privacy that are based on this idea that I know everybody else on chain and I can trust them. Because if it's just you and your closest business partners, you can, 
right? Uh, but that means you've made a bunch of security decisions that honestly would not hold up well in an environment full of hackers. That would be like exposing your corporate intranet to the internet, right? People would just slaughter you, right? They've taken all those things that you didn't patch, all those uh, uh, you know, things that are, were not sort of poor, well secured, they would just be taken down so easily. So I, I would say I was wrong about my assumption that we could migrate private blockchains back onto the public network just because they were built on a fork of Ethereum. And, and that's certainly one of the things that people often say is, oh, we, you know, we'll start off private and then we can just migrate across. But uh, uh, like, as you rightly point out, they're not going to be thinking about the public chain uh, privacy approaches because there's different approaches available on the private permission chains. Right. And I was I was wrong about that because I said that, too. Right. And I was like, trust me, it'll work out. It didn't. Right. And we discovered that pretty quickly. And then the other thing is, you know, token standards move pretty easily. And you can throw tokens into a uh, uh, you can throw tokens into um, all kinds of like privacy tools like Nightfall, but business logic is way more complicated to go from from a private blockchain to a public blockchain and preserve privacy. I'll, I'll come back to that when we talk more about Nightfall, but business logic could not migrate really at all. And so, with, with regards to kind of you know having having the confidence and really, really it's one could arguably say it's a thesis about you know how enterprises should be looking at public blockchain now i think it was in 2019 there was a report that ey published that really reinforced that there was a lot of appetite for public blockchains but presumably you've came up across came up against a lot of people wanting to push back though and say we're well, no hold on this is just it's too scary you've got to think about things like gas and there's you know there's cryptos involved we don't have legislation for it and so on and so you know we did, did did you find that um, you you, know, you were able to you know, change the minds of many there? Or is it more being like a drum that you've been continually beating and more people are starting to come around to it? Um, and the baseline protocol we'll certainly come on to as well. But uh, you know, how's that gone? Uh, I do not have a future in marketing. I, I don't feel like I did a good job of convincing people. It's weird. I mean, I will tell you that our leadership inside of EY are sold on this vision. They get it, right? And the people that we bring in from the outside who have any kind of experience with like the financial services are sold on this. But a lot of our enterprise clients, it's been an almost impossible sell. And unfortunately, tragically, the only thing that convinces people with certainty to move onto public blockchains from private is the horrifying experience of implementing a private blockchain. It's amazing. Like 75% of the companies that implement private blockchain later on decide we should have gone on to public. 75%, that's an astonishingly high percentage. It's, by the way, much more successful than me arguing with people, right? When they do it, what they all discover is the same problem, which is that nobody wants to join your proprietary private blockchain. And because of the way a lot of companies think, they all wanna control their own blockchain, right? So what happened, what we discovered, we did a survey, we, we organized a survey with um, Forrester, and what they found was that for every one company that was willing to join somebody else's blockchain as a member, two companies started their own. That's a disaster. You can never get a network effect if, if uh, you got two people start have, throwing a party for every one person who's willing to be a guest, right? That's, that's fundamentally the problem. And once people realize what a tough sell it is to get somebody else to join your private blockchain, then they're like, you know what? We should have gone public. So it's the experience of implementation that unfortunately is the most compelling way to convince people they need to go public. Yeah. And, and so then moving back to Nightfall, as you said, like, this was something that had been on your mind about you need to have these, these on-chain privacy approaches just because it will not fly with enterprises otherwise. So um, you spent a lot of time there the team you know get, getting it out the door getting it developed and continue to invest a, a lot in it when you first kind of like, released the, the the initial version of it did that sort of you know help sway things a little bit more in your favor with regard to public blockchains at that point or was it still kind of you know not quite enough no it definitely had a big impact right i think uh it had a more of a, a sort of a um let's say a moral impact and a direct financial impact. So the prototype version of Nightfall was released at DevCon in 2018. 
So we started work in 2016. We released a prototype in 2018 at DevCon in Prague. And that was a big milestone. But honestly, so we built we built a prototype supply chain where we had like um, uh, raw materials being transferred to a manufacturing hub and then being turned into something new and then being sent out to a um, to an end customer. And we did it all under privacy. We did all the movements under privacy. And that only cost us $4,000 in gas. In 2018, I mean, we knew already, like, it's a cool prototype, but the gas costs are unreasonable, mm-hmm. right? And so between 2018 and uh, 2020, we got the gas cost down. We kept driving it down. We added, you know, we, we improved the efficiency. We, we dealt with, we added batching. Um, you know, we, 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 and then eventually we shifted to optimism. And unfortunately, as fast as we could drive the pace of gas costs down, um, the, uh, uh, the price of Ethereum rose, right? So we were always sort of, we were never making, I think before 2020, I think our lowest pricing point was like 25 cents for a transaction, which definitely makes a lot of transactions viable. But, um, you know, as the gas prices rocketed upwards, again, it got really difficult. Um, our shift to optimistic rollups though made a huge difference. And then we got sort of the gas cost down to a manageable level. And so by 2020, Nightfall 3 was ready with, uh, you know, a ZK rollup under an optim- a ZK optimistic rollup. And that was when the folks at Polygon approached us and that led to the creation of Polygon Nightfall. So that I, I think what we'll see is that Polygon Nightfall effectively becomes kind of this like critical mass moment for uh um for nightfall and night and sort of blockchain transactions at enterprise quality with privacy and so with um the the, the work with polygon how, how does this kind of slot into baseline protocol because of course you know there's the uh it, it's a project that uh ey's been very involved in as well and it's um it was it was made public about 18 months ago initially um what what's kind of the story there so baseline protocol, the analogy I would give you with baseline protocol is, and the way I explained it to a lot of people inside of EY is, with Nightfall, we built a really fancy lock, right? But the lock is kind of useless unless somebody builds a door and the door handle and the door frame, right? And baseline protocol is all these other pieces that you need in order to really do a full set of end-to-end encrypted blockchain transactions, tools, standards, things like enterprise address books, rules for how you're going to share um, uh, certain information, hand, how you're going to handle business logic with privacy until you can have a full z- zero-knowledge virtual machine. There are a whole bunch of things that had to be figured out both now and on the roadmap. And the idea behind the baseline protocol is that we can do a bunch of other things that support this process and uh, we can we can build some standards and rules that will really make this simpler and appealing to enterprises. Do you think now with now that you've actually got the support with Polygon and given the traction on Polygon and also of course the you know, the, the transaction throughput can support there with the, the lower gas costs, that's going to be the new gold standard for probably the next few years. That with baseline, or do you think that uh, given ha- the rate of change in the industry right now that's happening, it's uh, you know it's it, it could well change. Uh, it could well change. I mean, th- so the baseline stuff, I think it, it's not a blockchain. It's going to be a it's going to be a set of tools that will endure, right? I think what we're seeing here is a very rapid maturing, though, of the zero knowledge space. So right now, we have zk optimistic rollups, right? I, I think we we made a list of something like ten different types of uh, zero knowledge and other types of zero knowledge rollup tools. I think. Seven or eight are non-privacy focused. They're just scalability focused. Two or three, like like um, uh, uh, Starknet, or maybe it's not Starknet, but Zcopru, um, and of course EY Nightfall, the Nightfall Polygon, and I think one other that I'm forgetting, zk Sync, maybe um, support privacy. So there's a very limited number that really support privacy. I think you know when this gets deployed in the next couple of months, this will be kind of the best privacy option for a period of time. But one thing you've got to remember is Nightfall 3 and Polygon Nightfall don't support complex business logic. They support payments and transfers, 
right? But they don't support complex logic. So if you, if you wanted to have really complex rules, you've got to still have other tools at your disposal, like the baseline protocol. Eventually, I think we're going to get to a full ZK VM, a full zero knowledge virtual machine, where you'll be able to run your full applications. We are currently working on something called Starlight, which will allow you to recompile existing Solidity applications into zero knowledge circuits. Um, but it's none of these solutions are there. None of them are fully mature yet. And the, the next big job that we have is to, to start maturing the privacy solutions and scaling them up. And so I, I think we are still very much in a high change environment for the next couple of years in this space. Yeah. And some of the principles of like a baseline will be super useful. Like one of the things that I think baseline did really well is uh, there are two things that baseline does really well. Number one, they came up with some principles around how you handle data. And in particular, they said you never ever put sensitive enterprise data on chain. That sort of settles the whole discussion about what do I put on chain or not on chain? The answer is you put links and hashes, you never put data on chain. Secondly, um, baseline protocol really sort of reminded the entire world that you can use blockchain as truly um, decentralized middleware between enterprises. And there's a value proposition for that and for the kind of synchronization value, not just the tokenization. So it's, it, it, it's got some useful items, but it's going to evolve a lot over the next couple of years as this zero knowledge infrastructure matures as well. And so with, with the zero knowledge infrastructure, that will kind of be a significant building block in, in enabling more than just you know using it as baseline. It's a way of syncing systems of records, so to speak, providing the proofs there. Exactly. And so with regards to tokens, one of the areas uh, certainly certain proponents of the Web3 space, uh, I think Chris, Chris Dixon is one person who's spoken about this recently, and he sees that tokens are you know, being the, the key building block of um, Web3, in, in effect, what the web page was to the Web 1.0. Do you have a view in terms of you know, where, where tokens fit in more broadly within the enterprise space? Yes, absolutely. So I, I could not agree more. And one of the things that we thought, it's so funny to think about this now. So about four years ago, I think 2016, I made this presentation. I said, there's four big things that are going to happen in the world of blockchain over the next few years. Number one, everyone's going to realize public blockchains are the way to go over private. And everyone's like, okay, duh, obviously. Number two, I said, everybody's going to want to transact in fiat currency. We're all talking about crypto now, but the truth is we want to transact in fiat currency, not because cryptocurrency is bad, but because companies and individuals, we earn our salaries in dollars or euros. We pay our taxes. We have our mortgage denominated in that, right? You know, when you, when you move money into a foreign currency, and, and the easiest way to think of Bitcoin or Ether as foreign currencies, you add risk. Right. So I said, you know, people are going to want to transact for the most part in. They're going to want to transact in fiat currency. Right. And number four, um, uh, they are going to want to to tokenize everything. Right. They're, they're not going to um, we're not going to notarize. We're not going to timestamp things. We're going to tokenize everything. Uh, and that's going to be the foundation of all this. And so one of the things that I, I really prioritize in our discussions inside of EY is I, I don't just want us to move around tokens. I want to think like when you think about a business process, like a purchase order or a contract or an invoice, those all the inputs and outputs of those processes are also tokens. An invoice is a token. You should be able to sell that invoice right, for cash now. A purchase order is an item of value. It should be tokenized, and then you should be able to borrow against it. And in fact, we hired a really brilliant guy named Will Entrican about three years ago to help us. It, Will is the author of the ERC721 standard, and we really believe like purchase orders, invoices, contracts, these are NFTs. Long before we talked about art as NFTs, uh, purchase orders, contracts, invoices, uh, um, you know, uh, accounts payable, receivable, these things can all be tokenized and should be tokenized as NFTs. So I, I couldn't agree with you more. It's essential. It's depressing and staggering that we even had to have this discussion in the enterprise world. And it just also speaks to the huge amount of opportunity there is right now for people who want to actually build out solutions, thinking about this, this tokenized future in that respect.
So one, one of the points that you touched on just there was about the, the future of cryptocurrencies in terms of people not wanting to actually hold them. And certainly where you've spoken before, and uh, I think CNBC, you, you, there's, you mentioned about Bitcoin and the whole, um, you know, it's, it's like the, the digital gold narrative and people hold it there as maybe their inflation hedge or whatever else. Whereas Ether you referred to as really a, it's, it's almost like the, the, the way of people having passive uh, exposure to the, that in, entire world of what's happening there. Um, do, you, do you think that with those, and I, I don't really want to get into a big tangent on investing in cryptos because there's enough people talking about that, but I, I think more, more broadly, though, it's about where the future lies in the utility of, you know, Ethereum especially, because you know, certainly what got me into it always was this, the community angle. I, I was a big fan of Linux and the whole movement back in the 90s with that. And I always felt with Ethereum that it had that similar feel about it. But, you know, where it's going to go, you know, are people going to continue to see it as ultimately like an, an investment that they can hold to have exposure to the broader ecosystem? Or may that change and we actually get to a future where people just use Ether for transacting with the, the, uh, the, the EVM? So for sure, I think Ether as a, as a way to passively expose yourself to the ecosystem is very good, right? Uh, and it's, it's um, be, because of some of the recent EIPs that, that make Ether somewhat deflationary and, is, you know, consumption of Ether is driven by um, kind of transact, you know, sort of the value proposition is driven by transactional demand. And Ether is a native currency of this ecosystem. All these computing services on this world computer are natively priced in Ethereum, right? In the same way that airplanes and Big Macs are natively priced in dollars, right? This gives, in my mind, it sort of is what gives an economy and a community some substance. Right, uh, and, and in particular, uh, so, so I think you know, buying ether is a way to expose yourself broadly. And the analogy I would give you is buying dollars exposes you broadly to the US economy. Buying ether exposes you broadly to the Ethereum ecosystem. However, I really believe if you wanna be more exposed to the ecosystem, if you wanna engage, you really need to own the, the, the governance tokens of the DAOs that you believe in and that you see adding value. And the analogy I would give you here is, if you were to go back a century and say, hey, America looks like a good idea, right? If you were to go back to 1920 and say, if I were to bet on the next century of one country, it would be America. And so you say, okay, I'm gonna tell, sell my foreign currency and I'm gonna buy US dollars. If you just held on to those US dollars, you'd have some exposure to the US economy and that would be great. But you would have done much better to buy US dollars and then spend them, some portion of them, a large portion of them, of buying the stocks of the biggest companies in America that created all that value. The Ethereum ecosystem is great. And Ethereum by itself creates a lot of value because it's this, this means of exchange. But what's really powerful is the ecosystem and the community and all these enterprises that are doing things like NFTs, financial services, um, uh, collateralized lending, digital insurance, digital content distribution, right? We are building a new type of decentralized economy. And if you want to participate in it, you have to own the governance tokens of the DAOs that are making that happen. Yeah, absolutely. And it'll be interesting to see what, what sort of uh, equivalents to, you know, your vanguards and these passive index funds of this new world uh, you know, end up. So this like. is this is a big thing I really, really want to see is I want to see passive blockchain. I want to see a couple of things that are really important. Number one, I want to see passive blockchain. Ethereum is focused index funds, right, that automatically kind of allocate my money to the top. DAOs in the Ethereum ecosystem. That's one thing I really, really want to see. I would invest in one of those in a heartbeat. And in particular, they're important for people at firms like EY because we're auditors. And auditors are not allowed and should not own stock in the companies in which they, that they audit. And I believe sooner or later, those rules will be extended to governance tokens as well. If we audit a DAO, you should not own the governance tokens of that DAO. Right. And, and the SEC hasn't ruled on any of the things and they're not considered securities. So it, it's not technically a rule now, but I, I really believe from, a, from an ethical standpoint, you shouldn't own the governance tokens of any DAO that you audit. Right. Now, if you if you step back and look at how auditors interact with their own personal investments, we can't own 
the stock of a company that we audit, but we can own shares of a Fortune 500 ETF, right? Or uh, sorry, an S&P 500 index fund, right? So I can participate in the economy as a whole. So, so for me personally, I want to see index funds. That's one part of it. I want to be able to invest broadly in the ecosystem. Number two, though, is I one thing that has happened with index funds in the real world that's not been great is it has diluted people's personal engagement with the companies they own, right? The vast majority of shareholders don't vote on shareholder initiatives. And so I really also want to see delegated voting. If I end up investing in 100 or 200 different uh, uh, DAOs, through an, a passive index fund, and I have a lot of my income there, I don't have time to participate in a couple hundred different sort of governance models. But I do have time to pick out people I trust, and I would like to be able to delegate my voting authority to them. I don't want my vote unused, right? I want it to go to somebody I trust and respect and who will take the time to do that, that hard work. Yeah, you're, you're right. You raised a couple of very key points there, and and certainly on the, on the DAOs as well. Given the you know, right now, I'm you know, I'm I'm based in the UK. My, my company is a you know, England and Wales registered entity. Our accounts are public. You know, there's there's so much about DAOs there that you know it does actually slot in nicely. And I know in certain jurisdictions, they um you know they they do actually support um houses and actually give them legal entity status but there's there's just such a natural fit kind of for it to slot into many aspects of our existing frameworks for companies there yeah totally agree and so one of the other things that you wrote about recently was this this whole uh idea about how we're, we're in this kind of a, a place now where uh, there's there's an abundance of um, content and goods and so on, and we've almost mo moving to this point where there's infinite supply. I think the words you used were infinite supply at marginal cost for products and services, and it was all heading to zero. And part of one of the things as well to that was that you know money is free and interest rate low interest rates not fueling in inflation. Um, but you know, in, in reading that, I think one of the takeaways and certainly something that we see with respect to the blockchain ecosystem and projects creating tokens in effect out of thin air, people gifting them to others and so on and so forth. Is there, is there this kind of place we're heading to where, well, is, is that one of the ways in which this reality is playing out is that people are kind of creating free money via protocols and giving that to people um, so that they can get hold of funds without having to you know, go about it in the more traditional ways. Uh, yes, it is. And I think all of this discussion for me, sort of, I, I will confess, uh, personally, the, um, you know, I, I think uh, this idea of creating artificial scarcity doesn't sit well with me, right? I, um, I want to see the world, I, I, I I actually was very happy to see the big experiments we did during this, the, the pandemic with stimulus and income supports. I think there's a lot of evidence that we saved a lot of people from poverty. And yes, we're having a little bit of inflation now. The things that are actually in short supply are going up in, in cost. But I think most of that inflation is transitory. And I it would make me sad if the outcome of all this great digital innovation was to make things more scarce instead of making things more abundant, right? Some things will always be scarce. I, I used to, I joked in that article, like, you know, buy land, they're not making any more of it. And I will confess, I own plenty of land. But, um, you know, uh, for the most part, I would like us to, I would like to see digital technology bring about a world where there's more abundance, where there's more equality and less scarcity. And so I think as we, expand the role of blockchain, it has a great role to play in managing scarcity where things are actually scarce. But a part of my own personal philosophy isn't super thrilled with this idea of taking something that they could be infinitely available to anybody who wants it and turning it into a scarcity and status competition, right? That doesn't, that doesn't feel like we are making the world a better place in that respect. And I recognize that that must make me sound in some ways remarkably idealistic and naive, but that is who I am. 
But in, is there not the, the argument on the other side, though, of the opportunities that it creates for people who are, are in more, you know, say, poorer parts of the world where they couldn't necessarily have exposure to some of the opportunities elsewhere and they can create something that you know, then the rest of the world sees as valuable, which enables them to change their lives as a result of it? Yes, and I, I love that idea, and I think it's, it's an excellent idea, but I'm cautious about this. Having spent, I, I my undergrad, uh, I, I, um, I had a, a, a double major in, in economics and African studies. I lived in Nigeria. I worked on the, the first uh, mobile network there. I'm actually quite deeply familiar with the mechanics of mobile money. And one of the things that I believe that I have seen happen a lot is that companies have used, they have effectively kind of ESG washed it's like the sort of social equivalent of greenwashing. They're saying, oh, but blockchain empowers the poor. I'm sorry, it doesn't. Being your own bank does not empower the poor. It does not empower the those without uh, uh, much in the way of resources, right? Um, a incredibly volatile currency, right, doesn't help you save money. Um, uh, the risk of losing your password doesn't help you accumulate capital. The um, <clears throat> it's true that blockchain can enable you to be your own bank, but the the bar for that is really high, right? It, you know, you you need to have a very good understanding of technology to be comfortable doing something like that. And I will tell you, it's definitely not easy on a mobile phone, especially not the kind that's available in emerging markets. So I think we we should take with some skepticism when when a large company says but what we're doing is so great for people in emerging markets i would like to see proof of that because you know the the default assumption the sort of narrative behind it like hey the big banks don't want to serve these poor people isn't true right i know banks in europe banks in south africa they want to serve emerging market customers they want to serve low-income customers in many cases they are prevented from doing so. I have been to countries where to get a bank account, you need two forms of ID and a utility bill. And that is basically impossible to get in a country where 70% of the people can't have a utility bill because they don't have a fixed address, right? They don't have a bank account and they don't have a house to which they could have water service or electricity service. I mean, if those are the bureaucratic requirements for getting a bank account, no wonder people don't have accounts. And even the banks are like, this is ridiculous. It's, it's killing a huge market for us. So I, I, I think we, we must treat with skepticism claims uh, by some folks that this technology is, is just, uh, th that they should be allowed to do what they want to do because it's better for people in some unspecified you know, emerging market. Yeah. I should get off my soapbox now. No, no, it's. It, I think. I think it's certainly fascinating to hear, like the, you know, well, really quashing some of the the narratives. I think one one of the other ones that you've spoken about previously too is the this this whole taking back control of personal data and how you don't believe it's going to be happen. Are, are there, we can either expand on that or are there any other kind of narratives which you you feel quite strongly against because it's it's certainly helpful to educate the listeners as well. Yeah, I mean, so I'm, I'm, you know, you, you touched on one that's very important to me. I personally would love to see people be able to to take more control of their personal data. I just think it's a it's a very tough uphill battle, and I probably, I think of myself sometimes as a cynical optimist, right? I I'm very cynical about what's going to happen. I understand a lot, having spent you know 25 years at McKinsey, IBM, EY, I understand how enterprises work, and I think. If we want to turn technology into a, a really powerful force for transformation, we need to be smart and realistic about how enterprises operate. And instead of trying to change all the rules, we need to figure out how do we set up the rules? How do we set up the playing field so that there's, um, so that there's, uh, they, everybody is incented to do the right thing for the most people? And if, if I, I'll add one that, that I haven't written about yet, but I, I'm just getting ready to write about, which is I'm increasingly worried when I look out in the, the Web3, the blockchain ecosystem, what I see is what I'll call creeping centralization in the infrastructure layer. Like we, uh, we really need all of these protocol services, but we are in danger of in some ways recreating the... Uh, high levels of centralization that exist in the Web 2.0 world. 
Um, and so I think it's very important that we think carefully about how do we make it easy for decentralization to exist, not just at the data center, but on your phone, on your laptop, on your, your tablet, on your game console, that we, um, we don't just think about decentralization as a, this nifty back end thing, right? And I, I think that the, the challenge here is that if I, when we work with software developers, building truly decentralized applications is really hard. I mean, really hard. And you know what's really easy? Using an API to get somebody else to deal with all the backend decentralization complexity. But those easy APIs are delivered through centralized services. And we need to figure out how to deliver decentralized you know, services to decentralized users without requiring simplification as delivered through a centralized API. So I, I think there's a, a creeping risk of, of accelerated re-centralization that we, we should proactively address if we want a genuinely decentralized digital ecosystem. Yeah, absolutely. And those, those firms um, providing this infrastructure are certainly do, doing very well. Uh, we are one of them. Yeah. I, I mean, listen, the, a big part of the value proposition of blockchain.ey.com is easy user interface, direct APIs, right? Guilty as charged, we are doing really well, but it makes me realize we are, we are contributing ourselves to the increasing re-centralization of the ecosystem. And I'm not entirely comfortable with that. And if I could figure out a way to do it differently, I would. Yeah. Talk, talk, talking of ways to try and change the status quo there, you, you posted a picture on social, uh, <laughs> you, you on your, uh, I think it was your, your team lunch, and there was you, 11 of you, and uh, you'd sort of hidden the 10 faces of other people there just because of concerns over poaching. I mean, obviously, it's you know, tongue in cheek, but it also talks to just, you know, quite how hot the whole space is right now. And in 2019, LinkedIn said that blockchain was the most in-demand skill, and that was before, like, this, this huge... Um, you know, uptick. Do, do you think that there's going to be ways to help kind of, well, with, with tokenization and the sorts of incentive mechanisms you can create off that, that you know, it's going to be easier to actually align incentives in ways that people can feel more locked in? Of course, we have option schemes and these sorts of things, but I think I'd argue that because of the flexibility afforded by decentralized protocols, there's certainly a lot more potential for people to have new types of incentive that might, you know, keep them in one place for a bit longer and not be quite as uh, uh, open to these approaches from headhunters and LinkedIn and uh, these other places? So hard for me to know for sure. I mean, uh, we've been very lucky, right? The inflow has been as strong as the outflow and, you know, we've had, we've had turnover, but it's not been crippling. Um, but it was, it was a little bit tongue in cheek. That being said, I think one of the challenges, one of the reasons why I've let some people go and not fought hard to keep them or not just automatically match salary is, you know, we have a lot of uh, young developers on our team. And the truth is, it's hard for you to appreciate what's a, a great environment or not a great environment until you've actually had a chance to work at a couple of different places. There's a pattern, you know, I worked at three or four different places before I settled in somewhere for five or 10 years. It took me time to know what kind of work environment do I like? You know, what's important to me in a boss, right? Um, you know, uh, how much do I control do I need over my own time? Like I, I learned a lot. Like I personally am, my God, okay, I, I will admit I'm a nightmare to manage. Okay, I feel pity and I, am, I want to apologize again to everybody who's ever had to manage me. I'm a nightmare, I'm a prima donna, I'm highly, highly opinionated, I just do what I want. And I've sort of learned over the years about the environment that I can work best in. And, and I think to some degree, you can never stop people from looking because they need to figure out for themselves where do they want to work. The one thing I would say, that's, that's the, the, the thing that's been super frustrating for me is, you know, and, and my, this happened to my mother. She uh, got sick when she was about 60. She was a software developer. She could never get another job as a software developer. Like the age bias in this industry is gargantuan. And one of the things that frustrates me is um, it's not easy. Like I want to hire people who are older, 
right? They're amazing workers. I, I don't know where to find them. It's not easy, right? And most headhunters and most recruiters, they just go to LinkedIn and search blockchain engineer. And then we're all chasing after the same, you know, 5,000 white men um, who, who are good at this, right? I My philosophy is I want smart people who can program. You don't have to be a blockchain genius. And I am willing to invest into BYO to build our own, you know, uh, 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 clever people. But it's really hard. Um, it, it, I think the way that recruiting is done is counterproductive to the pursuit of diversity, to the to the creating new skill sets. It's all about hire, you know, jam the square peg into a right hole, the right hole right now. Find me that square peg as fast as you can. And and that is it, it. When you want to do something different, it's like you're swimming upstream. Yeah, absolutely. And so I think to your point there, you know, like it's like with with families who've got children and you know childcare arrangements, they want a bit of flexibility there. You know, you can't find like these people easily who um, are looking for places that can offer that sort of flexibility. But it's so important to. Um, and likewise, trying to find developers who've got, say, more than 10 or 15 or 20 years experience, it's it's, it's hard, right? It's, uh... I'll, I'll take a mainframe developer. I know they can be amazingly productive. I, I'm investing in training them. If any of them are watching your show and they're thinking, I can't figure out how to get a job in blockchain, they need to send me a resume. I'm hiring in New York and London. Awesome. <laughs> I think that's a great, great point to finish on, Paul. Um, it's been an absolute pleasure hosting you. If people want to find you, what's what's the best way to keep up with you know what you're up to or reach out to you? I'm at P Brody at P Brody on Twitter. I'm Paul.brody at EY by email. We have blockchain.ey.com. And if you go to blockchain.ey.com, there's a link on our homepage that will allow you to subscribe to like an EY blockchain newsletter, which we we do not spam people. It's like once a month. So those are the ways to find me uh, online. Awesome. Well, thank you, Paul. It's been an absolute pleasure and I look forward to keep keeping up with your developments over the coming years. Thanks for having me.